I'm Amy Louise Chin, and welcome to the Apocalypse Songs podcast. When Josh gave me access to Clara Wilson's recordings, I spent the next day listening to the second half of the tapes, and then another two days re-listening to the entire collection, taking notes about each song and cross-referencing it with the written diaries. Patterns soon became apparent, as Clara repeated motifs, fire, body parts, wounds and mutilation, buildings, the sea, the sky. I made a note each time one appeared. On the tapes, Clara never seemed to sing a song from beginning to end. They were all in fragments, and she repeated the same eight or nine songs over and over, each of which had originally appeared in the exercise books. Maybe they were her favourites. It was also very clear that Clara's condition was worsening as the months went on. Where in the early tapes she seemed afraid of whatever was afflicting her, the voice she seemed to hear in her head, in the later tapes this fear had transitioned into physical pain. Sometimes the tape would be filled with nothing but screaming and crying, deep and consolable sobs. Josh had been quick to dismiss any form of supernatural cause for Clara's strange behaviour, but I wasn't so certain. I decided to do a little more research into demonic possession. Well, the thing about these people is that they're, they're really hurting. It's a hideous thing, and for the family, to see them go through it, it's, it's heartbreaking for them. They just want their son or daughter back. I interviewed a Catholic priest who agreed to tell me some more about demonic possession and exorcism. The practice of exorcism in the modern era is understandably controversial, so he asked to remain anonymous. Well, there's no, you know, heads turning all the way around or vomiting green slime, or usually it's more behavioural changes. Unexpected swearing and blasphemy, or screaming, shouting, throwing things. They can be physically violent, but no, it's not like the movies. Is it common for you to be asked to perform an exorcism? No, it's not. Maybe once every couple of years. Um, and, and the one thing we do these days is if we are called in, we have a conversation with the family and the uh, afflicted person first to make sure this isn't some kind of a mental health issue. Nine times out of ten it is. But yes, we do occasionally get the call. Sometimes even from people who aren't members of the church and, and don't know where else to go. And is it only Catholic priests who do the... Um, the rite of exorcism. The rite of exorcism? You need to have a certain standing in your diocese. And you need to do a training course. Really? Mm-hmm. At the Vatican. But other religions, you know, every religion has some conception of possession or other demonic uh, interference. It's not just possessions that necessitate exorcism. You know, it's any form of demonic contact. And they all have their own methods. The Māori have their um, makutu. That, that's a type of possession, I believe. What kind of things do you do when you're doing an exorcism, uh, performing an exorcism? Well, usually there's a lot of prayer, dabbing some oil, salt, flicking holy water. It tends to take a few hours. But when the uh, um, demon passes, there is this peace. It's quite moving. People are so grateful to be back with God again. Have you ever encountered a possession case where the victim was doing something, you know, supernatural? <laughs> you mean making objects fly around the room or no, something? No, more like, um, say, if someone could predict the future. Uh, no, that's not something I've encountered. In my experience, the devil doesn't show his hand so easily. What do you mean? Have you found evidence of a possessed person predicting future events? I'm not sure. Not exactly. 
To know for certain if Clara really had some kind of ability to predict the future, I needed to consider Clara's lyrics with academic scrutiny. Josh was right. A song mentioning both a woman and a shipwreck is by no means conclusive proof that the song is about the Wahine disaster. Considering that the original tape had been analysed so exhaustively already, I decided to take a closer look at the exercise books. On an entry marked January 2nd, 1967, something caught my eye. A proper noun. Forsyth. I didn't recall any of Clara's other songs containing a name. I read the song again. It began, The grey house, a dark house, a house full of hurt, her face all unblinking, pressed into the dirt. No foresight, no more life. A poor fight on Forsyth. I searched Forsyth on Google, but there were a lot of entries. An island, a fairly popular crime fiction writer, an investment firm, a Scottish clan. I tried Forsyth NZ Disaster, and then Forsyth NZ Clara Wilson, but neither came up with any promising results. Finally, I tried Forsyth NZ Crime. I found a news article about a recent domestic violence case, irrelevant except for one sentence. Not since the 1984 Forsyth Terrace murder have we seen such a bloody and unrepentant show of misogynist violence. So what can you tell me about the Forsyth Terrace murder? Uh, still gives me nightmares, to be honest. Julianne Cousins worked for the Evening Press when the murder occurred and covered the case extensively. I was, I was about three years out of journalism school at the time. I'd been mostly been doing what you call soft news, you know. Entertainment, lifestyle, stories about people in the local community. Mm. And I'd been begging to get a real serious story to cover. But you know, I was the youngest person on staff, one of only two women, <laughs> so you know, wasn't looking likely. How did you end up covering this case? Uh, well, <laughs> to be honest, it was all timing. We were in the middle of the snap election, you know, with Muldoon. Oh, and right, yeah, of course. So... All the writers who would normally cover a high-profile murder case like this, well, they were all really tied up with election coverage. So they gave it to me. And, uh, be careful what you wish for, I guess. For those who don't know about this case... Which is not nearly... I don't know. I feel like if this had been a male victim, or if the perpetrator hadn't been the husband of the victim, I think when it comes to... Intimate partner violence. We have very short memories in this country. I have to admit I had never heard about it. Right, right. And I mean, you wouldn't have been around. Yeah, yeah, this is a little before my time. Right. So for those of us who don't know much about this case, would you be able to give a summary of the uh, incident? Certainly. Um, So, a woman in her 30s, Pauline Gray, she is murdered by her husband uh, in their back garden. Really nasty. Drugged her, then stabbed her to death when she was unconscious. And the um, the thing that was truly quite sickening about it was that the kids were inside. Two kids. Seven and um, five. They're inside the house the whole time, watching from the window. And the thing is, the husband left her out there for um, for two days. Just washed up and went on with his... His life is business. And someone called the police because the smell was starting. Yeah. Guy was a drug addict, you know, pee or something. The address of the house was 39 Forsyth Terrace, so that kind of became the shorthand for the whole thing. Wow, that's... Oh my God. 
Yeah, it's ancient history now, but... Oh, God. When I was covering it, I was so... I was worried sick about those kids, you know? Going through all of that and what else they must have seen growing up in that house. Yeah. So, uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you about this was because of this um, this piece of writing that I'm looking into at the moment. Uh, a, a poem that I think makes a few references to the case. Would you mind taking a look? Sure. Okay. Hmm. Well, well, yeah, obviously the first line. The Grey House, a dark house. Well, the surname was Grey, so it was literally the Grey House. Right, of course. And this bit about her face pressed into the dirt is obviously reference to, well, she was found in the garden, quite literally in the dirt. And unblinking is again self-explanatory. Uh-huh. Uh, what about this bit? Um, a pair of sevens, a jack, a queen, a mother in heaven, a father is seen. Well, the bit about a mother in heaven seems pretty obvious. A pair of sevens, a jack. Yeah, this is all related. It happened on July 7th, so, you know, seventh day, seventh month, pair of sevens. I remember because it was a week out from the election and that was the whole, well, yeah, a jack, a queen. The little boy, I think his name is Jack. And seeing the father, you know, that whole thing about the kids watching through the windows of the whole... Ugh. But yeah. I mean, if this wasn't inspired by the Forsyth terrorist murder, it would be pretty, very surprising to me. It even says it right here. A poor fight on Forsyth. Yeah. Where'd you find this? Uh, it's a long story. Um, I'm looking through some writings that a friend's... Uh, grandmother left to him poems right it's just well this must have been written by someone who was pretty close to the case what makes you say that there where it says jack the little boy had name suppression we didn't report the names of either of the kids oh, i see and queen well that was the thing we learned from the neighbors they thought pauline the victim they thought she was standoffish you know because she'd never stop and have a chat with them over the fence or... Mm. Of course, later we all knew it was because her husband was very rigidly controlling her movement and, uh, well, limiting her contact with the rest of the world. But they thought that she was just a snob. So they used to call her Queen Pauline, you know? Like she was giving herself airs. But that wasn't something I reported. So it's, it's reasonable to assume that the person who wrote this poem was part of this community. Or, you know, had some other way of knowing all these other intimate little details. What if I told you that this was written almost 20 years before the murder? What? We found it in an exercise book that dates back to 1967. Well... Well, I... I don't know. I, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I don't see how that's possible. Hi, Amy. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, good, yeah. Yeah, been, been working a lot. There's a, there's a big concert next week. Cool. So... Uh, how's the uh, research been going? Uh, it's been going. Yeah. I was calling to fill you in on some, uh, some new information. Oh, yeah? Those, those tapes get any crazier? Oh, yeah. Way crazier. 
the thing I found was actually in one of the exercise books. Okay. So, you know about the whole predicting the future thing and how it's mostly big natural disasters and kind of vague symbolic hints. Like, and yep, coincidences and common literary tropes. Right, yep. right, right. Well, I was rereading the notebooks and I came across one poem that made me think, what if Clara wasn't just predicting earthquakes and sinking ships and stuff? What if she was predicting smaller scale stuff too and we just missed it? Smaller scale? Like, like I predict tomorrow I'm going to stub my toe and it'll really hurt? No, like murders. Like one particular murder she refers to specifically with the name of the street and the victim's surname and weird details about the death that no one would know unless they were actually there. That it wouldn't happen until 1984. Amy, can you just stop? What? I don't want to hear any more about this prediction stuff, okay? Why not? Because, because it's not real. I know, I know you think it is, but it, ju- it just isn't. And there isn't anything you can say that's going to convince me. You're so not even going to hear what try- I have to say. I don't want to hear what... Because this is evidence. This is stone-cold proof that Clara... You are so set something. on all this psychic stuff that you're just seeing what you want to see and reading into things that aren't there. Because they can't be there. Because they aren't fucking real. Why are you being so close-minded? Well, why are you being so stupid? Excuse me? I mean, I mean you're, you're an intelligent person, and I thought that you, <laughs> you of all people would stuff. be able to... You're the one who contacted me and gave me the diaries and the tapes. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and I you thought you were a journalist. I thought you'd be professional. And I've done it, and this is what I believe, and I don't see why you won't even consider the possibility it might be true. I want the tapes back. What? Tomorrow. Just drop them at my place. I... Whatever, I'd, I'd take it back. I don't, I don't want you to look at them anymore. I should never have called you in the first place. I tried to call him back, but my calls went straight to voicemail. That night, I tried to record as many of the tapes as I could before I had to take them back to Josh. It was pretty rudimentary. I set up my microphone next to the cassette player and let it play. The volume turned up as loud as I could make it without getting angry knocks on my door from the neighbours. I was barely listening. My last conversation with Josh kept running through my mind. I just didn't understand why he was so resistant to any mention of the supernatural. There had been an aggressiveness in his tone that I'd never heard from him before and I didn't know what had brought it out. As I sat there, deep in thought, 
I suddenly realised I was listening to something that I hadn't picked up on during my earlier listens. With the volume turned up, a distant conversation could be heard on the tape marked April 9th, 1967. Thank you for coming to see her. That's fine, that's clear why you called. Do you think an institution... Electroshock therapy could do wonders for her. There have been some advances in recent years. Do you think we should move her in the next few days? I suppose there's a wait list for the private places. Yes, that's the other thing I needed to speak to you about. But it's not to move her right now, not in her condition. You're aware that you're just... What? You know who the father is, I suppose. No, I didn't know she had it. But she isn't showing. Well, not at this She'd have to be quite far away. She's barely been out of that room since... since November last year. That's, what, six months at least? No, no, she's only about three months alone. Doctor, that's impossible. Please excuse me, madam, but your husband... ...is in Malaya on a tour of duty. She's seen no one but me and Celia. Yes, that's your right. Nevertheless, your sister is three months pregnant, and until the baby comes, it's best to keep her here. Then I've recommended adopting it out and finding her a suitable facility. Yes. Yes, I suppose that's what we'll have to do. Clara? Let me in. We need to talk. It made no sense, and yet it made perfect sense. I'd been looking for patterns, but here was one that I'd missed. My labour is heavy, I strain and I cry. Parentless, a baby born. Like a wound, like a wolf. Had to pull a child out. I'll birth a song, a son and son. Ring the bells and light the fires in mourning for this world. Sing sad songs. When it comes to Clara Wilson, there's no such thing as certainty. Many of the people she met in her short and enigmatic life have since passed away. Her own records are so cryptic that they only obfuscate things further. I don't think I'll ever be able to gather enough evidence to convince a sceptic like Josh that Clara could really predict the future. I still don't know for certain whether she was living with a psychotic disorder or if there was some supernatural element that influenced her strange behaviour. But from this tape the second-to-last tape that Clara ever made, one thing seems incontrovertibly true. Somehow. Impossibly. Clara Wilson was pregnant when she died.
Thank you so much for listening. If you have any further information about Clara Wilson, please contact me at a.chen at radioaotearoa.org.nz. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Amy Louise Chen, and this was the Apocalypse Songs podcast.